I'd ask you if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when the, we were, sorry, when you were pagans, you were led astray um, to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one ever speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the inter- interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If a foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And those, on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we consider the gifts that you have given to the church for the building up of the body, we pray that you would work these things within us. That you would help us to have a right understanding of the spiritual gifts and a right application of the spiritual gifts within our body for the building of your church and for the glory of your name. We pray that, that you would help us, Lord, again, to seek to understand these things biblically, not according to our experience or our opinion, but according to your word. We pray this confidently through the power of your spirit in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So many of you will remember that uh, in 2019, that uh, Pastor Joshua and Abigail and I uh, went to um, South Africa and Mozambique and Malawi, um, primarily to uh, to visit um, the Shanes and um, and to uh, um, to bring Megan back uh, from her time there with them. Um, but when when we first arrived in Mozambique, I was waiting in the vehicle for for Nate, um, and and a man approached the truck, offering to to sell me what looked like a gold nugget. I declined. I wasn't about to, to buy a gold nugget from a, a guy on the street. But Nate told me that black market precious metals and jewels are a massive industry in Africa. Many years ago, Reader's Digest warned of the danger of 
of street corner emerald dealers in Zambia. The story is, is also told of the, the related danger of on the street corners from missing traffic lights. And you're probably wondering what is the connection between emerald dealers and stolen traffic lights. Well, you see, people are actually stealing traffic lights and selling bits of the green glass to naive tourists saying that they're emeralds. Now, I don't know if they're selling the red glass as rubies and the, the yellow glass as yellow diamonds, but these thieves pose a danger to buyers and to drivers. So if you're traveling to Zambia, be careful of counterfeit emeralds and missing traffic lights. But there's another counterfeit that has reached epidemic proportions in North America and has been exported all over the world, especially to Africa. And this counterfeit poses a far, far greater danger than almost anything I can think of. It's a counterfeit gospel. Speaking of the so-called prosperity gospel, also known as the word faith movement, third wave Pentecostalism, and the closely related new apostolic reformation. Most of us have watched the, the documentary American Gospel, Christ Alone, and in this documentary it is revealed how this false gospel has spread over much of the world from North America, and that Africa has been particularly infected with its false healings, false deliverance, and false teaching. When, when Pastor Joshua and I were in, in Malawi, we, we witnessed some of the evidence of this during our brief visit there. Zambian pastor Conrad Mbewe says this false gospel has virtually replaced the actual gospel in Africa. He says that it is quite rare to hear sermons about sin and repentance, so salvation has essentially been redefined as deliverance from sickness and poverty. If sign gifts were a testimony of the that the messenger and the messenger of God, false signs are a testimony that the messenger is a deceiver and the message a lie. I explained that I don't believe that the vast majority of so-called sign gifts that are practiced in charismatic churches are a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. I believe that at best, it is misguided human effort. It is often human manipulation and deception and even demonic manifestation. Now, before we really get in here, I need to, to briefly vi revisit two key definitions. We talked about them last week. These are charismatic and cessationist. Now, the popular definitions of charismatic is one who focuses on the practices and sign gifts, especially, uh, practices the sign gifts, especially prophecy, tongues, and miracles. A cessationist, on the other hand, believes that the gifts as given in the book of Acts have ceased. And I explained that those two terms are the, they're kind of the best we've got, but they're actually misnomers because charismatic well, charisma really just refers to gift, and it's and so in a sense all Christians are charismatic in the truest sense of the word. And cessationist is, is also somewhat unhelpful because because even most most people who are labeled the cessationists would not believe that that in fact I don't know of any cessationists who would say that all the gifts have ceased, only that the sign gifts have ceased. And so we need to be again those are we need to be careful of our terminology, but but I'm going to for because I don't have better terms I'm going to use in the course of this message, charismatic and cessationist as, as the terms, um, as are popularly understood. I also need to explain clearly that, that there are many charismatic churches who do not teach the prosperity gospel. There are many charismatic churches who teach the real gospel, that Jesus died to bear the punishment for sinners on the cross. However, I do believe that they share a common view of the sign gifts with those of the word faith movement, including prophecy and tongues and miracles. And that they share the same view of healing because of a wrong view of the atonement. We'll talk about this later, but they believe that physical health is under the atonement. They believe that not only did Jesus take our sin upon himself and suffer and die in our place as sinners, but he also took our sickness and our disease upon himself. Again, I'll come back to this later. So we looked specifically at prophecy in tongues and, and, how, and what takes place in the vast majority of Pentecostal churches and, and how that is something quite different from the sign gifts that you can see in the book of Acts. I explained that prophecy is not so much 
a foretelling of the future, as most charismatic churches teach, but is primarily a foretelling of the Word of God, the proclamation of the Word of God. Furthermore, there is zero evidence that speaking in tongues is a private prayer language. Zero. Rather, as on the day of Pentecost, the tongues spoken in 1 Corinthians 14 are real earthly languages that require an interpreter in order for the church to be edified. Again, sign gifts were a testimony for the messenger, so a testimony that the messenger and the message were of God. But, despite the fact that scriptures do, do, um, do not close the door for the possibility of the, that these gifts would continue, their key purpose of authenticating the messenger and the message is no longer necessary because the canon of scripture has been closed. So then, we need to ask, well, what role do the so-called sign gifts play in most charismatic churches? Do they fit the scriptural explanation of the spiritual gifts? Do they build up the church? Do they help people grow in their understanding and conscious dependence on the Word of God? Do they help people to rejoice in the gospel and love Jesus Christ more? Well, I believe that in most cases, they actually serve to do the opposite. Their understanding of the sign gifts makes experience the focus and gifts serve as an end unto themselves. And miracles are a major way that this experience begins to take center stage. So then, what is a miracle? Well, there are several good definitions of miracles out there that line up with the biblical testimony, but I like Louis Burkhoff's explanation. The distinctive thing in the miraculous deed is that it results from the exercise of the supernatural power of God. And this means, of course, that it is not brought about by secondary causes that operate according to the laws of nature. So, it, so God is working outside of the, the usual laws of nature. In miracles, God is working outside his normal natural laws. So we have things like parting seas and, and floating axe heads and healing the sick and so on. And that's how the, the Bible would, would it, it, how you interpret these things biblically. But we need to be careful not to misuse the word. Sometimes we, we overuse the word miracle. And that many of the events that we call miracles are really a glorious demonstration of God's providence, but they cannot be considered miracles in this sense. When you receive a check in the mail at the right time, it is providential and may be a direct answer to prayer, but it can't properly be called a miracle. Similarly, when a, a baby is born, this is one of the most amazing things that you can witness, but it can't properly be called a miracle. This is a, an event that, that follows natural laws. God providentially rules his universe. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. However, God in his providence sometimes works outside of his natural laws or suspends natural laws in order to achieve intended ends. The Westminster Catechism says it like this, God in ordinary providence, making use of means, yet is free to work without, above, or against them at pleasure. There is no word for miracle in Greek and Hebrew. The word that's translated miracle in 1 Corinthians 12, 28 is dynamis, the same word from which we get the word dynamite. And some have wrongly read that meaning back into it, and so they, they say that, the, that, that the, the, this power is the dynamite of God. But the power of the Holy Spirit is not dynamite. Dynamite blows things up. But the power of God builds things up. As Tozer explains, dynamite was named after the Greek word. The, the Holy Spirit and the power of God are not named after dynamite. Again, it simply means power. Simply, dynamis simply means power. And that's how it's translated in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now Acts 1:8 is is we're going to be focusing a lot on this in the next in the next in two weeks time and and then going forward as we look at the at the book of Acts because it Acts 1:8 is really a summary of the book of Acts that the apostles received power when the Holy Spirit came upon them to spread the gospel throughout the then known world. 
The apostles received a first installment of that power in Luke chapter 9, as Jesus gave them power. There it's called authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, and so on. But the fullness comes in the book of Acts, where there are a great number of miracles performed by the apostles. Just a few. And in Acts 3, Peter heals a lame man. In Acts 5, the, the apostles perform many miracles. In Acts 9, Peter raises Dorcas from the dead. In Acts 19, handkerchiefs that touched Paul were, and were able to heal the sick and exercise demons. Now, so we, we say the, the, the uh, miracles were performed by the apostles, but more accurately, they weren't performed by the apostles, but through the apostles. They were performed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Bibles refer to the book of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles, but I think it should rightly be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We saw earlier in our study of spiritual gifts that the performance of miracles was, was one of the signs of a true apostle. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So this then, then takes us to the, the reason for miracles. It's common for cessationists to say that the scripture's presentation of the purpose of miracles indicates that they're not occurring today. And Hebrews 2.4 is commonly cited. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the premise of that argument is that Hebrews 2.4 and really 1-4 says that miracles were only given to confirm the message of that that the message of the gospel is from God. The second premise is that the canon of Scripture is closed. And the conclusion is, therefore, we, need, we no longer need miracles to affirm the messenger because we have the completed message. And the second conclusion is then that miracles have ceased. Now, I agree with the statement that miracles affirm the, that the messenger is sent by God. But I disagree that that is the only reason for miracles. This really, what you're seeing here is a logical fallacy. It's begging the question. It's, it's drawing a conclusion based on an unproven premise. The conclusion that miracles have ceased on the assumption that miracles only occur as signs were, that were endorsement of the messenger of the message in the early church. Hebrews 2.4 doesn't say that. It only says that the truth was confirmed by miracles. It does not say that, that miracles only confirm the truth. Nor did miracles always confirm the truth. There, there are real signs that are performed by false teachers. Even Judas healed the sick and cast out demons. So we can't take one stated purpose of miracles and reduce God's purpose of miracles to that alone and then conclude that therefore they have ceased. While again, it is true that one reason for the miracles to endorse the message, and it can be demonstrated from scripture, that that was not the only reason for miracles. For example, you, you can't conclude that the walls of Jericho falling, the sun standing still, or crossing the Jordan on dry ground under Joshua's leadership were, were, to, were to confirm him and his message. Nor can you conclude that Elijah being fed by ravens or resurrecting the widow's son can, can, can be only to confirm him and his message. Nor can you conclude that the miraculous deliverance from Peter from prison on one occasion and Paul and Silas on another were only to confirm them and their message. Millard Erickson, in his Systematic Theology, points out that there are at least three purposes for, for miracles. Most important is to glorify God. Right? To give God the, the credit, not the human agent. Second, and, and this is the one that's here, is, is to establish the, the supernatural basis of the revelation. That's why they're called signs. And three, to meet human needs. Jesus having compassion on the needy, hurting people who came to him, is 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 one of the purposes of his miracles. This is because it's who God is. God is a loving and compassionate God. God has not changed. God is still a wonder-working God. God is still a loving God. He still responds to the prayers of the people, even to the point of the miraculous. So to the, but to these three given reasons for miracles, to that I'd add, a, I'd add a fourth clear biblical reason for miracles, and it's directly from our text this morning. For the building of the church in love. That's the reason that, that Paul gives here in 1 Corinthians 12 for, the, for, the, these, for these, these gifts is for the building up of the body. Remember, the gifts themselves aren't the point of 1 Corinthians 12. The gifts, including miracles, are to be used for the common good. 
You can do all kinds of things. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 13, but if you do not have love, you gain nothing. So then I cannot comfortably say that miracles have ceased. However, I do agree that miracles have largely ceased, at least in the purpose of confirming the messenger and the message, because we can now confirm the messenger and the message through fidelity to the word of God. The, the, you, can, you can test whether a messenger or a message from God is, is, how, is by how it measures up with God's word. So we, we don't generally need the, the signs to prove that a messenger is, is real or faithful. But I do believe that Scripture does not close the door for miracles under special circumstances. And I believe there can even be times when, when a, a miracle can be used to, to confirm a messenger or message. And, and we hear things coming from the mission field. Where, where again, we talked about this last week, where, where someone will speak in tongues. And it's, again, it's, I'm not saying this is common or to be expected, but that it can, it, I've heard testimony, clear testimony of faith from faithful um, missionaries who said that they spoke in, and the, to, a, to an unreached people group and the people understood them in their own language. But again, we can't rely just on testimony. We have to go to the word of God. We're going to hear later of, of miraculous healings that are associated with C.H. Spurgeon. But even with Spurgeon, you can't rely on Spurgeon's testimony. Testimonies about Spurgeon you have to come back to the word of God. Even most cessationists would, would pray for healing. And if it does take place, they would admit the possibility of it being a miracle. We need to be very careful. Just because you or, or somebody that, that you trust has experienced something in and of itself does not validate that it took place. Just because, but also just because you have not experienced a miracle doesn't mean it's real. And just because you have experienced false miracles through charlatans doesn't mean that miracles are false. Just because you've had a negative experience does not mean it's real. And I'll say this again and again. You must form your opinion and judge your experience based on Scripture alone. So then have miracles ceased. Well, there's no direct biblical evidence to say so. But, but what, again, what about experience? We, we don't see miracles in the narrow sense of the word taking place around us. Again, I've heard testimony of miracles, but I can't really confirm fully that I've seen a miracle. But does that mean it doesn't happen? I, well, I've never seen Mount Everest. It doesn't mean that Mount Everest isn't there. I need to say that that in the, many of the, in the cessationist camp resort to this. Now, now this is not this is not a straw man argument. I've read a lot of respectable cessationist teachers on this subject. I've listened to to most of the the plenary sessions from John MacArthur's Strange Fire Conference, and, and that argument from experience came up repeatedly. And it's actually in itself it's ironic because one of the biggest charges against those who are or charismatic and continuationist is that is that it undermines the sufficiency of Scripture, but in appealing to experience, they themselves are actually undermining the sufficiency of Scripture. Experience is not authoritative, one way or the other. It's it's easy to misinterpret experience in one way or the other. What can be deemed miraculous might be a misinterpretation of events, but in the same way, the perceived absence of miracles might be due to other factors. Now, it's true that, that as cessationists are quick to point out that, that most miracles in the scriptures occurred during a few relatively brief periods in redemption history, mainly during the ministry of Moses and, and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha and Jesus and the apostles. And that really only leaves a, a couple of hundred years in the whole 4,000 years of recorded redemption history where miracles were common. But we don't find anything but expectation of miracles in the, of the people in the scripture. Furthermore, even cessationists like John MacArthur will readily admit that miracles will take place in the time surrounding the return of Christ. Again, that, that's tied to his, his eschatology, but he is allowing for miracles. But we also have to ask another question. Perhaps we aren't seeing miracles in our culture because of our faithlessness. Now, now, I do have some personal experience of this, but I can't base my conclusions on my experience or anything else. Yet, why is it that we hear the testimony of miracles that are, again, taking place in the mission field? Could it be that miracles are, are taking place according to what cessationists acknowledge as the purpose, or at least a purpose, 
of miracles to prove that God has sent a messenger and his word. I believe so. We need to realize that, that our faith does not rest in miracles. Jesus performed many miracles, but he was rejected by the vast majority, even those who were, who were direct recipients of his blessing. In Luke 17, of the, the ten lepers that he healed, only one of them returned to give thanks. In John 6, of the, of the thousands that he fed, only a handful of disciples remained with him when he told them they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, the Pharisees sought to kill Jesus and Lazarus to cover it up. Miracles alone do not produce faith, but they can, they can confirm faith in the faithful. I'll say that again. Miracles alone don't produce faith, but they can confirm faith in the faithful. But in this, we also see a danger, particularly in a miracle like the feeding of the multitude. The miracles can actually distract from Christ. Right in John 6, 26, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Everybody wants to have their perceived needs met, but few understand that their greatest need is salvation in Jesus Christ. You, you don't have to, to be saved in, in order to... to to want to eat. That's natural. You don't need to be saved to, to want to be, be healed if you're sick. That's natural. It is, it, is not, it, is, it is a felt need, not the greatest need. And so in these cases, this, miracles can be a distraction from Christ itself, himself. And I think that's, that's why, and, and I don't pretend to know all the ins and outs of, of the, the church in Africa, but I think that's, that's one of the reasons why in, in places like, like many parts of Africa that the the, the, the prosperity gospel has been so successful because the people are so impoverished. You know, but we also see the prosperity gospel in very wealthy cities. I, two cities that have lived, two of the cities that are the most wealthy that have lived on the Gold Coast and here are a very, at least, have the appearance of being wealthy. And, and it's, it's no wonder that, that most of the biggest churches ha have bought into this, this false teaching. Because people want, they want wealth and they want something to affirm their wealth. It's also tied to the fact that people are naturally drawn or attracted to the supernatural. They're drawn to the extraordinary, to the sensational. And so this focus can be a distraction of what can only be seen with the eyes of faith. It can be a distraction for one of the most powerful miracles that we can see. If you could see any miracle, in the Bible, what would it be? The parting of the Red Sea? Elijah calling down fire from heaven? The raising of Lazarus? Well, there's one miracle that is often overlooked, but is more amazing than any of those. That's regeneration. Regeneration perfectly fits the, the definition of the miraculous that I quoted earlier. The miraculous deed results from the exercise of the supernatural power of God. It is not brought about by secondary causes that operate according to the laws of nature. Salvation is monergistic. The work of, of regeneration, when the Holy Spirit takes out a, a stony, dead heart and replaces it with, with a heart of love for Christ... That is one of the greatest miracles that takes place on the planet. And you and I are recipients of that miracle. And we see it happening time and time and time again. May nothing ever distract us from the glory and the wonder of the miracle of regeneration. So with the, the time we have left, I want to look briefly at one of the most common miracles claimed today, that of healing. Healing is also the most common miracle testified to in the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 12, 9, gifts of healing are listed among the spiritual gifts of the church. So let's, let's then look at the spiritual gift of healing. In the scriptures, you see people healed from a range of ailments, ranging from blindness to leprosy to epilepsy, paralysis, and demon possession, and so on. And we acknowledge that physical illness is a result of the fall. As as the Lord said to, to Adam, you may eat of every tree in the Garden of Eden, but you, 
in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. And so Adam and Eve, they did not, they, their physical bodies, even a spiritual death into the world through, through the one man's sin, Adam and Eve, at the point of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, began to die. If they had not eaten it, they, they would have lived forever. But they began to physically die. The serpent tempted Eve, telling her that she, ate, that she would not die if she ate the fruit. But she did, and so they were cursed, and sin entered the world. Now, Adam lived for another 930 years, over 10 lifetimes of modern standards. But eventually, he grew old and died. It's because of his sin. And Jesus came to overturn the effects of the fall, including spiritual and physical death. As, as Luke read for us from Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was crushed for our transgressions. Sorry, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. As I mentioned earlier, many charismatics take this to mean that physical illness is under the atonement. And specifically, they mean that Jesus did not just pay for our sin, but he also took our sickness and disease upon himself. Now, if physical healing was, was part of the atonement as they understand it, then no Christian would ever get sick or die. But brothers and sisters, we will receive glorified bodies, but not yet. We will receive glorified bodies at the fulfillment of the kingdom of God at Jesus' return. So you could say broadly that, that, that physical healing is under the atonement, but not yet. Not yet. And so this is, I believe, it, and I said many charismatic circles, this is quite common to, to, to believe that, and I had close friends who have, have believed this, that, that, that physical healing is directly under, under the atonement, so that you can pray and that somebody can, will immediately be healed. Now, I believe that can happen, but, but not in the way they understand it or why they understand it. That passage in Isaiah 53 is, is really primarily talking about forgiveness of sin. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree so that we might live, sorry, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Peter is directly relating healing to the to healing of the effects of sin. Again, not directly to physical healing. Again, you don't need to be regenerate to want to be physically healed. You don't need to be regenerate to believe the so-called prosperity gospel. And I think this is where even charismatics who are, are more orthodox actually inadvertently fall in with those who would hold to the prosperity gospel. And you can see how the prosperity gospel sprung out of that movement because of that, that wrong belief of the atonement. Although there were, there were gifts of healing throughout the scriptures, again, the vast majority take, took place in specific time frames. And in the New Testament, the vast majority of them take place in the Gospels and Acts under the ministry of Jesus and the Apostles. And healing follows the paradigm that we saw with miracles. Healing certainly confirmed the message of Jesus and his messengers. But again, were they, was that the only reason? Was the only reason for miracles to confirm the messenger and the message? No. Like we saw from miracles in general, there are other reasons for healing. Again, healing takes place ultimately for the glory of God. Before Jesus healed the man who was born blind in, in John 9, he said in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, of course, the healing did confirm Jesus and his message, and it was a living parable demonstrating that Jesus is the light of the world, verse 5, but it was ultimately for the glory of God. Similarly, before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This was also a confirmation of Jesus and his message. It is also a living parable of the gift of eternal life, but again, ultimately it was for the glory of God. And there's another reason for healing. We've talked about this earlier. That God is a compassionate God. 
In Matthew 20, two blind men on the roadside cried out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And so Jesus had compassion on them and healed them. In Matthew 14, a great crowd came out to Jesus from the towns. In verse 14, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now again, it's, it's yes, Jesus testified the, the fact that, that he was, um, that he performed these miracles was a testimony, but it wasn't just to, to bear witness. It was because he's compassionate. Because he's actually really compassionate. Also in the place where he had compassion, in, where he miraculously fed 5,000 men with, with five loaves and two fish. And so we see that there are real and, and ongoing purposes. Certainly in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, and I believe in our day today, because, because God has not changed. But now on the, on the flip side of this, we need to be very, very careful because there are many who are going out, again, with their, their false healing and their false deliverance, and their false gospel. You might remember if, if in watching American Gospel, Christ Alone, the, the false teacher, Todd White, was, was out on the street and, and was supposedly um, healing people by lengthening their legs. You, you, most of you have seen that. And when the, when, the, the, when the clip, when they slow the clip down, you can see that all he's doing is bending the person's heel in, in a certain way to make it look like he's lengthening their leg. It's, it's an illusion. It's a deception. It, it, it proves that, that he is, again, a false teacher with his false healing. I remember recently talking with, with a man about this. This, this man is, is charismatic. And, and I explained from the video, and I, th I think he'd actually seen it himself, that, that it, it was fake. That this was a fake healing. But this individual replied to me, but my experience says otherwise. He had actually seen a, a woman do, ex do exactly the same trick that Todd White did, but, but would not believe that that was a fake because he'd seen it with his own eyes. His experience trumped the facts. There is no documentation, zero documentation, of people within this, this movement causing people's amputated limbs to grow back. Again, it's a subjective, a leg supposedly lengthening, of paralytics getting up out of wheelchairs, let alone of, of people being raised from the dead. When Benny Hinn goes to a new city, why is his first stop not at the children's hospital or the ICU? Where were these supposed faith healers during COVID? Kenneth Copeland came, the, came and, and purported that he could blow COVID away, and he blew into the air. And people are still being deceived by this. I need to be very, very careful. We need to go back and we need to measure all of these things by the word of God. We can see from the word of God that these men are charlatans, that they are frauds because of these fake miracles and because their message does not line up with the word of God. I want to spend a, just a few minutes dealing with, with, with demon possession and exorcism, which is considered part of healing, part of the, the, the gift of healing. To my recollection, I've never actually taught on this, whether, whether we can or should engage in, in exorcism today. And there's a reason why, because it's very rare in the scriptures. In fact, in the Old Testament, there, there's really the only case that, that some would believe possibly was demon possession is, is that of, of, of King Saul, when he has a harmful spirit of the Lord. There's some that would say that that is demonic possession. It possibly is. He certainly was acting like he was demon-possessed. But even in the New Testament, again, it's very, very rare. that There's only a few instances in the Gospels and only two in Acts. We'll talk about these when we, when we get there. But, but we, we there, it's, again, it's very, very rare. Uh, there's, sorry, there's three in Acts, two at the hands of, of Paul and then the failed exorcism by the sons of Sceva in Acts 19. The word, the English word exorcist comes from the Greek word exorcizo, which is found only in Matthew 26.63. And the, the word had the sense of, of adjuring or charging an oath, with an oath. And the, the noun form is only used once in Acts, in Acts 19, uh, by, again, by the, the failed and the failed attempt of, of the sons of Sceva. 
The word is never used to describe the work of Christ or his apostles in delivering people from demons. But again, it's, it's closely related to the, the gift of healing. So why is it that, that again, throughout all the scriptures, you see so, so little activity of, of, of demonic possession, but then it's like in, in the Gospels and Acts, it, it, it's highlighted. And you see, again, I believe there's, there's six incidents of, of Jesus actually casting out demons in the Gospels, by far more than, than anywhere else in the scriptures. Why is that? Well, because I believe it's because that demonic activity was especially heightened around the time of Christ in the Incarnation. So it makes sense that, that Christ would come and would, would bind and defeat the strong man. He came to crush the serpent's head. And it makes sense that, that, that the, the devil and his, his demons would be, would be fired up around that time, the time of Christ. However, the attempts of, of many charismatics to cast out demons of depression, demons of alcohol, demons of lust, and so on, has no biblical basis. This perception of a, of a demon under every bush gives more credit to Satan than he deserves. Yes, Satan is the father of sin and a tempter, but the issue is not an indwelling demon, it's indwelling sin. And Christians cannot be possessed by demons. True Christians cannot and will not be possessed by demons. The house is, has been swept and clean and filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no room for a demon, for the Holy Spirit dwells. But does demon possession and exorcism occur today? Well, I believe it does especially in areas where the gospel has not penetrated. And, and it seems as in by, by good testimony, again, ultimately filtered through the, the word of God, but that in places where, where the gospel has not really yet been preached and, and the gospel has, has not really had an impact, that there's, there's quite often an increase in demonic power uh, around the time that the missionaries first arrived. Sinclair Ferguson tells of a, a 19th century Presbyterian missionary in China named John Nevius who wrote a book on demon possession and, and, and who engaged in exorcism. But when, he, when, when John Nevius and other, the other missionaries cast out demons, they simply did so through prayer. Right? That's the testimony of Scripture. This kind only goes out by prayer. Prayer is our best resource in every instance. Now, some manuscripts do include the words and fasting, but, but the point is that, that it's not declaring personal authority over a specific demon of, of this or that and then casting out. It's praying to Almighty God. But the testimony of scriptures is even, in, in Jude we read that, that it was, that, that, that they, they, they bore no, made no railing accusation against the principalities, but they said, the Lord rebuke you. We're, we're not told to directly resist Satan. We're, we're told to, to flee Satan. God resists Satan for us. He, he overcomes Satan for us. The battle is his, and he has defeated Satan for us on the cross. We do not need to now declare personal authority over, over some supposed demon to cast it out. If somebody is dealing with indwelling sin, we go to them with the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't cast out demons. We, we call them to be sanctified through the word of God and the power of the Spirit. And I think it's really a cop-out to, to try to cast out a demon from somebody who's dealing with sin. So again, speaking about a Christian. Miracle, miraculous healing took place directly under the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. But again, the question is, has, have they ceased? Well, no, I do not believe they have ceased because of another important reason for healing. The reason that is listed again in 1 Corinthians 12 for the building of the church. Again, in 1 Corinthians 14, speaking of, of tongues and prophecy. This is the purpose of the gifts and that, that purpose still continues. And when people see others miraculously healed, that they are encouraged in their faith. And like other miracles, healings alone are never the source of faith, but they are an encouragement to the faithful. And there are many times when the church still needs this. Now you might not see 
healings taking place around you, but that does not mean that healings aren't happening. It said especially you're seeing the work of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. This in and of itself is a miracle. People are being delivered from, from bondage to sin through the power of the Holy Spirit as they're granted new hearts. It's a granted repentance that leads to life. This is a miracle, and, and, and we must never undermine that or distract people from the glories of that. And so we, we, as we've seen, the, the effects of the fall have been overturned by Christ, but they'll not be completely overturned until the return of Christ. So how can we experience supernatural physical healing now? Just turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, 13 to 16, just briefly. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's a, again, we don't confess like we do to a priest, um, we, we're all priests, but there is there is a, 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 a um, but but confession is a means of grace. Confession to one another. But here you see this is this is a command, and there's no sense here. There's no sense that that what was taking place in, in James has ended or would end before the return of Christ. We have to be very careful. If if our hermeneutic allows that to be for that particular time only, then then then. What does that do to the rest of the commands of the New Testament? Now, you, you, you all know of, of C.H. Spurgeon, the, the prince of preachers. And, and Spurgeon is awfully quoted. I don't think Spurgeon said very much that wasn't quote-worthy. But not many people know that, that Spurgeon actually also had a healing ministry. Conwell's 1892 biography of Spurgeon wrote that no man, probably in England or America in this century, in the 19th century, has ever healed so many people as did Mr. Spurgeon, although he was not himself a physician and never wrote prescriptions. There are now, this is a quote, there are now living and worshiping in the Metropolitan Tabernacle hundreds of people who ascribe the extension of their life to the effect of Mr. Spurgeon's personal prayers. They have been sick with, with disease and nigh unto death. He has appeared, kneeling by their beds, and prayed for their recovery. Immediately the tide of health returned, and the fevered pulse became the calm, the temperature was reduced, and all the activities of nature resumed their normal functions within a short and unexpected period. Now we don't hear about, about that. That's, that's really an obscure fact about, about Spurgeon, but, but hundreds of people. And so I wonder if maybe one of the reasons why we don't witness miraculous healing in, this, in the same way that, that Spurgeon did is because we don't do what Spurgeon did. We don't pray like Spurgeon did. Do you, when, you, when you come before the Lord for prayer, do, do, you, do you see this as a, as a, as a last resort, as... as Prayer is just like, I've got nothing else I can do. I'll go to God in prayer. Or is prayer your first thing? Your first reflex is to go to God in prayer. In prayer. Or have you become potentially so jaded by, by the, the fake healing that you don't believe that, that God really can and, and does heal? Like God has decreed that he would work in response to the prayers of his people. May we repent of, of prayerlessness. And may we go to God confident that God can heal. If it is according to his sovereign plan. But again, may, may, we, may we never be distracted. You know, when we pray, we, there's, there's many people that we're praying for. And we, we, we always pray that we pray for their healing. But, but we pray ultimately that God would be glorified and they would be sanctified through the process. Submitting the whole situation unto the Lord and trusting that God for his mysterious and wise providential care of that person might withhold healing because he has a different work that he wants to do in their heart for his glory. And may we never forget 
that our biggest problem is not physical, is not a need for physical healing. Our biggest problem is sin. And that Christ has taken care of that for us on the cross. And may we, we never be diverted from praying most for people beyond their, their any need for physical healing is their most for forgiveness of their sin. May we never forget what Christ has done for us so that if we face, if we face physical illness and, and if the Lord tarries, all of us will. And all of us will lead this life if the Lord does not return first. May we never forget that our greatest needs have been met. That we have been forgiven. That Christ has paid the debt that we could never pay. He has lived a life that we have never lived. And that we can trust that, that, that even if God does not heal us, that we still know he loves us because he sent his son to die for our sins. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we consider your, um, your omnipotence, Lord, we think of the, the wondrous miracles that you have accomplished. We realize that the greatest miracle that you have ever accomplished is regeneration in the heart of a sinner, that you have caused us to be born again through the power of your Holy Spirit. May we have a right understanding and a right balanced approach to the miraculous, including the, the miraculous gift of healing. But may that because, be because our first focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that, Lord Jesus, you paid for our sins so that we never need doubt your love for us. May we grow in the knowledge of your love. May we grow in confidence in your love. May we grow in boldness because of your love. May we pray earnestly as adopted sons and daughters coming to you, our Heavenly Father, confident that you will work all things out according to your wise and wonderful plan, even if that means withholding something that we so dearly want because ultimately we want to see you glorified by whatever means. Help us to do this, I pray, for your name's sake. Amen.